Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened to ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In November, we launched Global News What Happened to because I was interested in knowing what happened to stories that once dominated headlines. In that time, we've reconnected and shone a spotlight on stories like the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, the Chilean Mine Rescue, the Pulse nightclub shooting, and many others. I'm journalist Erica Vela, and I've been on this journey to find and speak with the people at the center of each of these stories. And some of these stories have had major developments since we first brought them to you. This week, I'm going to take a look at three stories and fill you in on what has happened since. This is an update of Global News What Happened To. In May this year, the Supreme Court of Canada decided it would be reviewing the sentence of Alexandre Bissonnette, the man convicted in the Quebec mosque shooting. The shooting occurred in 2017. Six people were killed, and 19 others were injured when a gunman stormed the Islamic Cultural Centre of Quebec City. Ayman Darbali was there the night of the massacre and was critically injured. It's like a war. I was hearing a lot of screams, people screaming. In late March 2018, more than a year after the shooting, Alexandre Bissonnette pleaded guilty to six counts of first-degree murder and six counts of attempted murder. In our episode on this story, we told you about how in November 2020, the Quebec Court of Appeal ruled Bissonnette would be eligible for parole after 25 years. The judge had originally sentenced Bissonnette to life in prison with no chance of parole for 40 years. But the Quebec Court of Appeal declared the section of the criminal code allowing consecutive life sentences unconstitutional. Crown prosecutors asked the Supreme Court of Canada to look at the case. And in May, it agreed. The Supreme Court of Canada will be hearing an appeal in the sentence of Bissonnette. I spoke with Kent Roach about this development. He's a professor of law at the University of Toronto. And I wondered, could Bissonnette's parole ineligibility be increased once again? It really depends on whether the court finds that the provision for stacking periods of ineligibility for parole is constitutional. If they find that it's constitutional, then yes, presumably the sentence would uh, be increased to reflect the number of victims. The Supreme Court might do that itself, or more typically, it sends it back to the trial judge for resentencing. But another alternative is that the court could find that uh, the stacking uh, of uh, parole ineligibility uh, 50, 75, 100 years constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. Kent said this is a precedent-setting decision. It could affect future sentences that involve killers with multiple victims as well as past ones. Basically, the Supreme Court sets the law for all of Canada, and so this will determine multiple murder cases. And it may also have an effect on those who have already been sentenced. Is If the Supreme Court said that multiple uh, periods were unconstitutional, then I would expect that those who have already been sentenced under this provision, like uh, Justin Burke, uh, the far-right far extremist and murderer in Moncton, New Brunswick, would at least try to get a benefit of the court's ruling. Amira El-Gawabi is a human rights advocate, and at the time of the shooting, she worked with the National Council of Canadian Muslims. 
She told me that justice and deterrence are at stake, and that's why it's important the Supreme Court of Canada revisits the killer's sentence. The families of those who are lost deserve that justice. And, you know, it's a, it's a pillar of uh, our democracy that people are held accountable for their actions. So that accountability has to be um, seen to be uh, doing that justice. So to see the appeal go to the Supreme Court of Canada, where it's hoped that the judges will, you know, look at the case and um, try to come out with some kind of balance to figure out, you know, what justice looks like is important. It's important to see that process. Um, and then the second thing, I, you know, communities and the families would be looking for uh, is deterrence. So it's really important that, you know, when someone commits uh, any criminal act, that the punishment uh, will deter others from committing similar acts. Following the Quebec mosque attack, Canada has continued to see a growth in incidents of hate that target the Muslim community. The latest one being in May 2021 in London, Ontario, when four members of a family were killed and their young son injured in what police are calling a targeted attack. The reality is that there are, you know, currents of hatred running through our communities, and these currents impact. Canadian Muslims, Asian Canadians, um, Jewish Canadians, Black Canadians, etc. That there is hate out there, um, and for a variety of reasons, that hate can sometimes manifest itself in very dangerous, deadly ways, as we've sadly seen in London, where you know we still don't know fully the details of the accused's motivation. But what was the evidence that the police found to show that he hated Muslims and this is what drove him to to kill this family in this manner? But what you know what we can say is that, you know, the fact that there is this level of hatred out there is a, a problem that's really has not been sufficiently addressed through various governments and through various policy options that many communities, advocates and civil society organizations have been talking about for decades. The suspect in London, Ontario, was arrested and charged. But there was something significant that happened in this case that didn't happen in the Quebec mosque shooting. The deadly attack on a Muslim family in London, which claimed four lives, will now be prosecuted as an act of terrorism as well as murder. Terror-related charges were brought forward. It almost feels as though in the public mind, um, now that this is the second mass attack against um, Canadian Muslim communities and this specific family after the Quebec City four years ago, that slowly people are realizing that um, this type of attack is terrorism. I think that for the longest time, particularly after 9-11, the the not only the public but our security agencies or politicians the ways that which we were talking about terrorism that is like inspired by Daesh or al-Qaeda and looking at white supremacist groups looking at hate was just not a priority even though over the past few years we've actually seen hate groups rise we've actually seen you know a disproportionate focus on these muslim communities 
it's as though there's this slow awakening to what many advocates have been saying, and that is that you know white supremacists are dangerous. That um, that hate can be a motivation for terrorist acts. That that is a particular ideology, and um, it really represents. It seems to me that a, awakening to you know what terrorism can also uh, look like. And sadly, it's often looked like brown and black people. It hasn't looked like white people in the public mind, even though, you know, that that's not fair. And the reality is much different that, in fact, we are seeing violence meted out against various racialized communities in this country. And it really needs to be taken very seriously. Another story we covered this season that I wanted to update you on is one about Boko Haram and the abducted Chibok girls that inspired the hashtag Bring Back Our Girls. The leader of Boko Haram, Abu Bakar Shakao, has reportedly been killed. He took over the insurgency group in 2009 following the death of Muhammad Yusuf. Under his leadership, Boko Haram cemented their terror on April 14, 2014 when the group claimed responsibility for abducting 276 young women from their secondary school. Our abductors had guns, military-grade guns. There were no brick houses in Sambiza, only grass houses. We were kept in grass huts. After three months in Sambiza, we were moved to the town of Guaza, where we lived for six months. What scared me was the fear that they would kill me. They came and threatened to kill us if the military attacked the forest. The way they dressed was frightening. You could only see their eyes. I thought they would kill me. David Otto, counterterrorism and organized crime specialist, says Shakao was a controversial leader. His leadership led to a splintering of Boko Haram and factions began to emerge. The first breakaway was in 2012. And Saru split away from Shekau's faction, claiming that Abu Bakr Shekau was too brutal. He was killing Muslims. He was killing children. He was killing women. He was killing his own commanders. And therefore, he did not represent the Muslim or the Islamic religion, which he preached. David said one other faction was formed after 2012. The Islamic State of West Africa province, also known as ISWAP, emerged in 2016. This faction became a rival to Shakao's faction, which was known as the Jazz Faction. The Jazz Faction was notorious for mass kidnappings and assassinations. According to David, both factions have reported Shakao's death, but each side has a different story as to how it all happened. So what the Islamic State faction is saying is that Abu Bakr Shekau killed himself to prevent them from capturing him. And after he, he refused to pledge allegiance to Israel, he was convinced, he was told that if he pledges allegiance, he, will be, um, he, he wouldn't be killed. He would be you know, made as part of the Israel faction. And then he killed himself. That's Israel's own version. Now, the version of of jazz, you know, those who are affiliated to jazz faction, what they're saying is that Abu Bakr Shekau killed himself while in a meeting, in a negotiation meeting, sitting down with Israel senior commanders. 
And in that meeting, he refused to pledge allegiance and then suddenly pulled his suicide vest, killing himself, his own commanders, and Iswap senior commanders. It's also important to note that this isn't the first time that there were reports that Shikau was killed. Previous um, announcements were made by the state. They were made by the Nigerian military. And, of course, it, it turned out not to be true. And Abubakar Shikau had taunted the military that he was still alive. But he said there is something significantly different about the latest reports on Shikau's death. I think on that point, what needs to be significantly mentioned here is that this is the first time that the reports of the death of Abubakar Shikau is coming from an intra-jihadist group. You know, this is the difference. The difference now is that his death was announced and confirmed by a rival faction. These are people that Abubakar Shikau has, has known for a, a very long time. They had relationships when they were all part of the, um, the Boko Haram faction before the split in 2016. So by their confirmation that they've killed Abubakar Shikau and he's no longer alive, it, you know, it, it's, it's a different kind of announcement to the one that was done by the Nigerian military. But mind you, the, the Nigerian military itself has not been able to confirm whether he's dead or alive because um, nobody has an evidence of, of his body except that the announcement came from, you know, Iswap itself. David Otto says Shikau's death marks a new chapter and there are a number of different paths the group can take in the future. The first angle is that leadership decapitation, which is, you know, the killing of a leader, you know, can have a significant impact on the group's existence. Um, it, can, it can disrupt the movement. It can lead to the collapse of that movement. Now, this would only apply in the case of Boko Haram Jazz faction, because Abubakar Shikau was a cult-like figure. I mean, he's been in, in power since uh, 2009, so for close to 11 years. He has killed anybody who wanted to take over power from him. He, you know, he made sure he, he ring-fenced um, the leadership. And, you know, um, any viable leader, you know, was assassinated. So uh, now that he's dead, there is a high possibility that his faction is going to crumble because he did not prepare for some kind of a succession line for anyone to take power from him. That faction is likely to face a downturn. Now, this would happen if the Islamic State successfully convinces all the followers of Abu Bakr Shekau to join them. But from what we know, uh, there are a number of factions, particularly one faction that is ruled by a commander known as uh, Malam Bakura. He, he is insisting that he wants to sustain the legacy of Abu Bakr Shekau. So he's refused to join the Islamic State of West Africa province. And he has carried out alongside his units a number of counterattacks against Iswap, you know, to retaliate for the killing of Abubakar Shikawa. I wondered, how would this affect the over 100 Chibok girls who have yet to be released? The collapse of the jazz faction and the death of Abubakar Shikawa could uh, bring to closure uh, the faith 
of the remaining Chibok girls. You know, remember that there were about 110 Chibok girls that were still, according to Abu Bakr Shikau, under his leadership. And if Iswap has taken control of this territory and if taken control of, you know, um, you know, the people that were under him, then there is a possibility that, you know, we will then be told about the, the, the circumstances and the nature in which those girls, you know, were, were kept. And, you know, there's a possibility that, you know, those girls could be released under the ISWAP leadership, you know, just to show the world perhaps that they have a different operational tactics. David says that the future is uncertain, but many people in Nigeria are feeling a small sense of relief upon learning of the possible death of Shikau. Abu Bakr Shikau, who has been the main actor within Boko Haram since its emergence in, well, you know, since its violent emergence in 2009, it means that the, the civil society, you know, will be, will be much more relieved because most of the attacks on what I call soft civilian targets were launched by the Abu Bakr Shikau faction. They were not very much interested in, in, in trying to win the hearts and minds of the local population. So attacks against you know, populations, people who went about their daily businesses in, in, in marketplaces, in mosques, um, attacks that were carried out on, on, uh, on road infrastructure, um, all these attacks, if not most of them, were launched by the jazz faction. They cared very little about the civilian population. To the jazz faction, everyone was an enemy as long as they were not part of their faction. So it's a big and massive relief uh, for the Nigerian population because, you know, um, the Abu Bakr Shikau faction is no longer, you know, viable. He's now dead. And there's a possibility that even if someone were to succeed him, then they would have to put up fighting against Iswap, which, which would create a big distraction for them to operate in the way that Shikawa used to operate before now. As the eyes of the world turn to Japan later this summer for the Tokyo Olympics, it's been announced that wastewater for the Daiichi nuclear power plant will be treated and released into the ocean in two years. You'll remember from our premiere episode that over 1.2 million tons of radioactive water is currently being stored in a thousand storage tanks since the Fukushima nuclear disaster in 2011. That water would fill 500 Olympic-sized swimming pools. The Daiichi plant was flooded after a magnitude 9 earthquake rocked the country and unleashed a massive tsunami. The Japanese government announced the decision to clean and dump the water in April this year, and it has many environmentalists, fisheries, and countries crying foul. China has been a vocal opponent. Here's the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson. In regards to Japan's decision to deal with wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear plant accident by releasing it into the ocean, as a neighboring country to Japan, China expresses its serious concern over the situation. And South Korea is now exploring petitioning an international court over Japan's decision to release water from its Fukushima nuclear plant. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Global News What Happened To. 
We'll be back in the fall, and we'll continue to monitor stories for updates, and we'll include them here. Global News What Happened To is written and produced by me, Erica Vela, with producer Dila Velezquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnson. Also, thanks goes to Drew Hasselbeck, supervising national online journalist for Global News. Thanks also goes to Stephanie D'Souza for editing assistance. Let us know what you thought of this episode and please share it with a friend. It will help us grow the show and bring you more incredible stories. You can also help us out by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also reach out to me personally. We're always looking for stories, so if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Vela or email me at erica.vela at globalnews.ca. Thanks so much. <laughs>